G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown. Character strengths and silver linings. Your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I'm joined once again by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey. Dad, how are you doing today? Good, thanks Rowan. Now, today's episode we've called Demystifying Dissociation. So, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, particularly we're going to be talking about dissociative disorders, which are quite complicated reactions that more people have than is recognised. And I find that when people bring up complicated cases to discuss in supervision, for example, quite often themes of dissociation and dissociative disorders come up. So we might talk a little bit about the difference between dissociation and dissociative disorders, but it's to do with some quite complicated psychological problems that people can develop, often in relation to past trauma and abuse. So as we have with the last couple of episodes, we may not have as much of a focus on the character strengths today, but we certainly do invite everyone to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes because all of the ways that we spoke about the character strengths in terms of how to implement them for anxiety and depression and exercise, they're going to be relevant to elements of what we're talking about today. But today we might be getting into some of the more, I suppose, nitty gritty uh, psychotherapy side of things potentially. But, but as always, we certainly do want to have an optimistic and positive framework for the podcast. So Dad, as you just mentioned there, that might even be a good place to start. So What is the difference between dissociation and dissociative disorders? Is dissociation something that everyone experiences or is it something that is only linked to trauma? Yes, well, the experience of dissociation is relatively common in everyday life because dissociation technically means an alteration in our usual sense of everyday reality. And so it can come up in different ways, like if we're in a movie and we become so absorbed in the movie that we feel as though it's real, we get really caught up in the story. That's a form of dissociation. We're kind of disconnected from our everyday reality of sitting in a chair watching a screen. But also there can be what we call highway hypnosis, where we're driving along and we don't remember much of what's happened the previous 15 minutes, even though we've observed all the lights and directions that we need to go in so it's like we're in a slightly different state so dissociation actually relates to a normal dimension of hypnosis so hypnosis is something that looks to alter our everyday reality in some way such as we might imagine that we're lying on a beach and feeling very calm or we might imagine that we're throwing a basketball in a ring or things like that they involve elements of dissociation even involving fantasy or our imagination in certain ways where we take ourselves away from our current setting that's a form of dissociation as well but um, dissociative disorders are something different again because qualitatively they relate to certain kinds of, well, problematic aspects or clinical uh, difficulties. For example, if people are experiencing amnesia. And one example of that is one lady I asked if she had periods of missing time, which is common with dissociative disorders, and she said, the only way I know that I've been shopping is I open the boot of my car and there are groceries in it. Now that's qualitatively very different and that can be very disruptive if we have that degree of amnesia. It also can be a sense of 
depersonalization or derealization. Depersonalization is experiencing your body differently. For example, it might even be looking in the mirror and finding it hard to recognize yourself or standing outside oneself looking on and watching as though you're another person. Then there's derealization, which is feeling as though things aren't real. It's as though looking at the world through a fog, for example. And then there's identity alteration. So that relates to a condition called dissociative identity disorder. It used to be called multiple personality disorder. And that's a fascinating aspect of human experience, but it has many complications to it for people living their everyday lives. When the person experiences themselves at different times, as though they were a different person. And so people can actually have a belief that they are more than one person in some ways, although many people have a less distinct sense of different alter states within them, so it can vary in degree. But these are the main elements of dissociation. In dissociative disorders, there's amnesia, depersonalization and derealization and alteration to one's identity. Well, I think in demystifying some things about dissociation, there's a lot that we can learn about mental health from it. Because one thing that I've always been interested in is, I heard one time that mental illnesses and mental disorders are just a social construct. So it's not as if people are sort of broken or it's not as if there's some sort of kind of huge paradigm shift that's kind of happened for something. These are, although they come with sort of many problems and can be quite hard to deal with for people, in some way there's an element of legitimacy in terms of their presence within the human experience, isn't there? Because it's not as if it's some sort of foreign thing that we know nothing about. We can actually understand these a little bit more than just labelling someone as being damaged or broken or crazy or something like that. Yes. Now, I think one thing that comes up in what you're saying there is every kind of reaction that people have, there's some kind of purpose to it. And we'll talk about it through the podcast today about how dissociation in taking oneself outside of your usual experience is looking to buffer oneself from pain. Actually, it relates to a kind of avoidance or numbing of pain in some ways. Well, it's understandable that people would look to do that. But by the same token, we might call it a disorder because we're identifying that it can have some disruptive effect on someone's life, like amnesia or depersonalization. But there is a purpose to people responding to challenges in different ways. And so dissociation and dissociative disorders in some ways are quite a creative way of looking to adapt to difficulty. For example, when people are experiencing pain in their arm, they might experience their arm as not belonging to them, which is something that we would teach in hypnosis. Hypnosis sees it as helpful to sometimes not experience yourself as being in your own body, so to speak. But if that happens unbidden and spontaneously, then it can be quite disruptive. And then we might use the term disorder to convey the notion that it is somewhat disruptive. But yes, even terms like multiple personality, that's a kind of construction that almost suggested as though there was more than one person in an individual. But that's not the case. It's more like the person still is one individual, in a sense has one personality, but their personality is less integrated in terms of their sense of identity across time. So it's like a kind of fragmentation rather than there being true multiple selves. 
So is that where dissociative disorder links to hypnosis and trauma in the sense that when someone's experiencing trauma, they may put themselves into almost like a hypnotic state and that allows them to maybe not experience the intensity of the trauma, which then can potentially lead to problems later down the line? Exactly. And that's what really helps you understand dissociation in dissociative disorders. It's actually a kind of self-hypnosis that people are using to manage certain situations. And well, I suppose there's two aspects to dissociation. One aspect is the person becoming overwhelmed, usually by traumatic circumstances, and they feel so overwhelmed that they can't process the whole event. There's too much to take in. It's like a bucket filled up with water and water spilling out the top. There's so much happening that we can't register all the aspects of our experience in memory, and we might even recall something in a more fragmented way. But the other aspect of dissociation is partly using imagination to a degree of reacting as though we are not in that situation at the time. And so one example I can think of is a young woman who, when she had previously been repeatedly sexually abused in childhood, she'd imagined herself flying around the ceiling, meaning that she had a way of kind of hypnotising herself to be outside her body to escape the horror of what was going on at the time The complication being you ultimately don't necessarily escape the impact of that. There's still some impact left in the person's memory and their experience. It's just that they've become detached from it. But then these memories that have been buried in a similar manner to hypnotic amnesia, these memories can be triggered in different ways later on. There can even be a triggering of bodily memories or feelings, even though the person might not fully remember the actual situation itself. And so there could be a fragmentation of memories that that happens that way. But ultimately, with dissociation, there are those aspects of being overwhelmed. And so our senses not being able to have an integrated record of what happened and or looking to escape pain by being out of our body or disconnected from our feelings at the time to buffer ourselves from pain. So how much of a consensus around dissociative disorders is there in the mental health community? Well, that's a good question and a complex question because it's changed so much over a long period of time and I think that there's more acceptance of dissociative disorders being a legitimate diagnosis these days. But even then, I think it's quite controversial and under-recognised. For example, I think that many people who are diagnosed as having bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder where they've had marked trauma histories and repeated childhood sexual abuse, I think many people with that background actually have dissociative disorders that might present that way. But look, I might even mention a little bit about the history of dissociative disorders and how it was seen, because over 100 years ago, it was quite common that people identified conditions like multiple personality. There were very prominent psychiatrists and psychologists and others who recognised the condition, like there was Pierre Jeannet and William James. They referred to different cases of multiple personality. Uh, Morton Prince, who started up the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, he was very interested in multiple personality. In the very first edition of that journal had a multiple personality disorder case in it. There's the Menninger Clinic, In America, a famous clinic, I think the first group psychiatry clinic, and that was started off with a strong interest in multiple personality. 
So that was up to about the 1920s, but then things changed when Freud, who, like others, had been interested in hypnosis beforehand, and there was that link between hypnosis and dissociation and hence an interest in dissociative symptoms before Freud. But then when Freud came up with the idea of psychoanalysis, like a talking cure, and no longer used hypnosis so much and developed such a popular field of psychoanalysis, people went away from hypnosis and therefore didn't think of dissociation quite so much. And also what happened is there was a rise of behaviourism in psychology. So looking at reinforcement schedules and operant conditioning and doing work on animals and then extrapolating from animals to human beings, that really took attention away from the notion of dissociation. And then it became, well, just not recognised so much or not thought about so much. And then in a way it went underground And so in terms of recognising dissociation clinically, it really came up more in the 1970s again, and that was partly because of rape crisis clinics being started. It was the Vietnam War and recognising dissociative experiences in war veterans. That started to come up a bit more. But it's still very controversial from the 70s and 80s and early 90s. There was more research emphasis on dissociation and multiple personalities that was called then. But then it was very controversial. And I would say the majority of psychiatrists and mental health professionals around 1990 and the early years after that basically either didn't believe that multiple personality or severe dissociation existed and people who did believe that it was a legitimate kind of diagnosis, multiple personality, tended to be marginalised in different ways. But then there's been more research done with dissociation since, and I think that there's more recognition, say, with trauma reactions, that many people, maybe about half people have severe trauma reactions, have some level of dissociation. I think that's recognised a bit more. Even in the DSM, which were the standard mainstream psychiatric criteria, when people have PTSD, you can specify the level of dissociation that people have with their PTSD. That's a real change. But I would say still it's markedly under-recognised. Well, one thing that I find interesting about dissociative disorders are that Hollywood seems to have picked up a little bit on their existence, <laughs> I suppose, and, and the potential prevalence in society. You look at things like, was it Sybil, the movie with Sally Field? And I actually, I actually remember uh, watching, I believe it was the, the United States of Tara with Tony Collette when I was a little bit younger. And, you know, it came on, show about multiple personality disorder. And, you know, every five minutes or so, you turn around and sort of ask you, oh, is that, can that happen? And, you know, you're sort of there going, oh, yeah, nah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to burst your bubble there. But, yeah, but Hollywood and, and sort of media is something that's almost explored the idea of dissociative disorders, potentially even more than psychology is what you're saying there at times. Yes, and that's fascinated me how, say, Three Faces of Eve, a famous movie, came out in the mid-50s. Sybil was in the 1970s. I remember there was a movie, Primal Fear, in the mid-90s, as you say, United States of Tara. It seems to me that Hollywood was far more ready to explore 
the phenomenon than mainstream mental health care, even though clearly it related to a psychiatric condition or mental health problems in some ways. And um, now it's tricky because Hollywood is going to tend to present things in a more stark, almost cartoonish-like way which is a real exaggeration of how often things would show up. For example, if people with dissociative identity disorder would switch from one state to another, it wouldn't be as dramatic often as, for example, it would have been in Sybil. All of that could happen. At times it could be quite dramatic, but usually it'd be much more subtle than that. So there's that problem of Hollywood maybe presenting a more exaggerated version. But there again, that's what you do with movies to get across a point. And I think the interesting thing is with Hollywood and movies, they're interested in portraying the extremes of human experience. And so that naturally led Hollywood producers at times to be interested in multiple personality and dissociative identity disorders, it's called now, because really that's around an extreme of human reactions to stress and trauma, which is absolutely fascinating how our mind can work to really so fully block out a memory, for example, for something that happened that morning or for large chunks of our experience or for a person to experience themselves as though they're another individual. That's on the edge of human experience. But I think it's a pity, really, that Hollywood was prepared to at least grapple with this when so much of psychiatry wasn't. And that'll be a theme that comes up later on when we talk about my experience of learning more about dissociation. It happened in the context of working in a psychiatric hospital. And unfortunately, I think there was so much ignorance and negativity around this, so much rigid scepticism, a lack of interest in truly understanding the phenomena or making more attempt to understand the phenomena, because at times it seems so bizarre or unfathomable or different from our usual conception of things that it was really hard to take in and get our heads around it. And I think a lot of people then just put their heads in the sand. Well, from what you've described so far, and look, really not wanting to certainly endorse these kind of methods of protection in any way, but you can understand how people do almost deploy these methods. And so you can sort of see how if someone was in a situation where, for example, they were experiencing repeated trauma, that they almost taught themselves that these were the ways of whether it be sort of processing negative feelings in their life. And they may have been at an age where they didn't have the infrastructure to properly process stuff. So with that in mind, how prevalent are dissociative disorders? Look, I'll mention that in a second, but I'd like to go back to something you mentioned before, which I think is very insightful about how people will use what they have available to manage with things at a certain time. So I'll mention a little bit about, again, how dissociation often probably relates to childhood trauma and abuse. Now, the thing is, as we've talked about, dissociation is largely a kind of buffering against emotional pain. And hypnosis can be effective to buffer against emotional pain. That's why we use it in clinical therapy. But the peak age of hypnotizability is between the ages of 8 and 12 years. So that's when children have the maximum capacity to step away from their usual reality and, if you like, imagine or experience themselves as though they're in another reality. So let's just say a child is repeatedly sexually abused 
say by their stepfather, they can't escape it. They're in a situation where how do you deal with that overwhelming experience? Well, if you can draw on that hypnotic capacity and imagine yourself maybe flying around the ceiling or being outside your body at the time, well, that's a kind of adaptive response in many ways at the time. It really works to buffer you from pain. Now, the problem is, if that becomes a very established kind of reaction, dare I say, if it almost works too well, then when the person, say, 14, 15, 16 years of age and has everyday life problems like how you're accepted by your peers or how you're going at school in different ways or whatever, any painful experience, it'll be tempting to overuse that approach of buffering yourself from pain, maybe being outside your body or blocking off feelings or not remembering something painful. But then the problem is by almost over-practicing that kind of strategy, which might come more naturally to a child when they might not have the other supports available or whatever to help deal with things. So of course they'll resort to that when they can. But the problem is that if that becomes overdeveloped, then people aren't developing their other, what we might call more mature ways of dealing with emotional pain and distress, which partly involves muddling through it, drawing on our other supports, maybe being able to talk to someone about it. But those strategies might not have been available, well, certainly to young children, might not be in a position to do that, but people might not have had the supports around either, and so tend to deal with it more internally using those self-hypnotic mechanisms. Now, if we think that, say, many children are going to have that capacity, and sadly as we're realising more and the community is catching up more with how prevalent, say, sexual abuse is, There's been this whole recent more recognition of, for example, church-related sexual abuse. Well, there's institutional sexual abuse, but most sexual abuse will tend to happen in a family setting. So that's very frightening and concerning, and it's very different from, as we talked about last time with trauma, that in the 1960s, the main psychiatric textbook used in Australia said that incest was about one in a million incidents. Well, now we know it's going to be a lot more than that. So given that children, many children will have this capacity to enter hypnotic states and given that many children will be subject to abuse, then it's not so surprising that it will become more prevalent when people have been through abuse and trauma. And so the estimates that I came across in the early 90s that made sense to me and I think probably still apply was about 4% of hospital inpatients in psychiatric settings, and about 15% of hospital outpatients. That was research reported in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 1993, and they suggested that only about 20% of the cases were identified. Now, these days, there's a huge variation in estimated prevalence. So for people seeking mental health services, the estimates for significant dissociation might vary between about 2 and 40%. Huge variation. So that shows that it's still controversial, still maybe little understood, lots of different perspectives about it, still to some extent a contentious kind of diagnosis or not made so often. But by the same token, I would say that those estimates from the 1990s, I think, are likely pretty accurate. About 4 or 5% of inpatients, about 15% of other people seeking mental health care. But I think it is really important for people to get their heads around it more because I would say over the years, 
the last 20, 25 years, half the cases that people bring to me for supervision, that would be whether it be in private practice or in hospital settings or whatever, about half the cases I think involve prominent dissociation. And the reason is because it is a complex phenomenon. People can present in different ways at different times. It's more confusing. They're often significant complications in people's reactions so it comes up a lot for supervision whereas if it's a more straightforward case of depression or schizophrenia or trauma reactions people don't tend to bring that up so much because it's more clear-cut how to work with it it is complex also ways of looking to best help people with dissociative disorders so in general i'd say the main thing is i think that the prevalence is underestimated even though it's hard to get exact figures but I would say it's about 50% of people with significant trauma reactions will have prominent dissociation. So it's really important for those of us who, for example, see clients with a whole range of trauma reactions that we have ways of looking for and identifying dissociation and developing our ways of helping people most effectively. Well, it seems to me that there's such a subjective element to people's experience of trauma that potentially that's where the sort of variance comes in. Because, you know, particularly if we're talking about children and stuff, they're going to have their own unique way of creating that buffer or creating that way of not dealing with the emotional pain so intensely. So I wonder if that maybe has something to do with it. Yes, well, the individual differences partly come across in the other kind of reactions that people have with dissociative disorders. So common additional reactions are depression, different kinds of anxiety disorders. It could be agoraphobia or panic attacks. Often people have substance abuse because four times as many people develop substance abuse if they've experienced past significant trauma. There can be certain personality characteristics which also overlap. So often when people are diagnosed with dissociative disorders, there can be four or five other disorders that could be diagnosed at the same time, the most common ones being, for example, depression, PTSD and substance use disorders. So in that case, because... Those other disorders that you mentioned there, they can almost have a range of presentations in themselves as well, can't they? So how, I suppose, almost back in the day sort of thing, how did you recognise that dissociative disorder was something in itself as distinct from some of the things that you mentioned there? Okay, now, look, this gives me an opportunity to talk about how I see diagnosis sometimes, and especially in the trauma area, is like many blind men looking at an elephant, and, and one's asked to approach the elephant, and, and one says they feel the trunk, and they say, oh, it's like a tree. One feels the tail and says it's like a rope. One feels the side and says, oh, it's like a wall. Well, I think that diagnosing dissociative disorders is a little bit like the blind man and the elephant. It depends at what angle that we take if we look at the etiology of people's difficulties so where they came from we'll think in terms of PTSD if we look at their affect or mood we'll think in terms of depression if we look at people's personality functioning we'll think in terms of borderline personality disorder if we look at comorbid problems we might think of things like substance abuse or we could focus on people having certain difficulties in their relationships or attachment Now, when we talk about dissociation or dissociative disorders, these other perspectives might be relevant for many people with complex trauma. But what we're identifying is the subjective experience of this alteration in everyday reality 
through things like amnesia, depersonalization, changes in identity, which are often very significant for the individual involved. So actually, if I use the term that I think someone has a dissociative disorder, I'm kind of choosing to highlight that aspect of their experience, which often is the most distressing thing for people, even though they might not tell anyone else about it just about because they might feel ashamed about it or frightened about it or they wonder if people think they're crazy or sometimes they just think that they're crazy because of having these reactions. So I tend to highlight the dissociative disorder aspect because that guides us to work according to models of complex trauma. And complex trauma means repeated trauma, commonly that started in childhood. But complex trauma means like post-traumatic stress disorder plus. It's not just like one incident or one event like a car accident or an assault. It's repeated traumas where the person's often learnt to adapt by this kind of buffering. And so with this... Even the ways of diagnosing dissociative disorders, there's a clinical interview that has lots of questions about depression and substance abuse and borderline personality characteristics because it's recognised that commonly these other aspects come together. So when we talk about dissociative disorders as a diagnosis, we're often talking in a kind of shorthand and referring to what's also known as complex trauma where you commonly get these other kind of comorbid difficulties. But look, the other thing I would add to that too is when highlighting dissociation with some individuals, especially if they've been diagnosed with psychosis as having a bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder, it's a way of telegraphing that we think that there might be another explanation for the person at times seeming to act as though they're out of touch with reality, but rather than suggesting that the person has some kind of biochemical imbalance that's degrading their processing, as happens with psychosis, it's suggesting that people might be going in and out of temporary states that alter their perception of reality or their functioning at the time, and five minutes later they might be functioning completely normally whereas you don't tend to see that with psychosis. So is dissociation something that you've always recognised or how did you come across dissociation? Ah, that to me is a really interesting question because I think that every person who came to identify either dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities it was called then had a fundamental shift in perspective, had to go through a paradigm change because I don't think any clinicians particularly started off believing in dissociation in the first instance because it was not in our training, we weren't exposed to it. And so for me, it was a dramatic shift in perspective. So how it happened for me is I'd actually returned to the hospital after being away on long service leave. It was in 1990 and there was a real controversy in the hospital at the time because one client had been diagnosed with multiple personality and most of us would have thought that's a condition that's maybe one in a million. But I was certainly convinced that that case was a real one because the story was the particular client had found herself in Sydney pushing a pram and figured out it probably was her baby, but the last thing that she'd remembered was living in Melbourne. Now, this was such a remarkable shift that relates to something we might call a fugue state, 
where someone engages in like a whole different pattern of behavior or role in everyday life and they don't remember it or don't remember what happened beforehand. So I was convinced that that was real. Now, a psychiatrist who'd diagnosed that person a little while afterwards, maybe a couple of months afterwards, asked if I would do an assessment of someone else to see if they might have a multiple personality. And even though the person during this assessment using the Rorschach inkblot showed some unusual kind of reactions, I thought the person was actually psychotic. So what had happened at one point is the person who was reacting to the cards as though they were real, dropping them on the floor, moving back from a card, as though it had some very fearsome kind of situation associated with the card. And that was unusual in itself. But at one stage, the person felt quite unsettled and got up from a chair and I stood up and moved back, showing open palms, looking to calm her down. And I just said something to the effect of, uh, look, Sally... And she closed her eyes to slits, looked fiercely at me and said, don't call me Sally. And at the time I felt a little bit unsettled and eventually I think coaxed her back to sit down and we continued on a little bit. Now, even though in retrospect that could be seen as an example of switching, which I was aware was a phenomenon associated with multiple personality, I just thought that this lady was quite psychotic I went back to the water, said, I wonder why I was asked to assess her. Clearly, she has paranoid schizophrenia. It should be obvious. And I'd forgotten the fact that hours before, I would have seen her in a corridor appearing to function quite normally and being friendly. She'd walk past and smile, even though I was a stranger, that kind of thing. Now, after a while, the penny dropped when I looked up a little bit more evidence about how people responded to a raw shark if they had multiple personality reactions. And I was then stunned. The penny dropped. I thought, this is remarkable because this person shows so many characteristics and did on the assessment as overlap with multiple personality. I became convinced that was real for her, but that I hadn't picked it up at the time, even though I observed this switching phenomenon. And then I realised that subconsciously, I didn't even entertain the thought that this person might have multiple personality, even though that was the question of the assessment, because I'd already come across someone else indirectly who had multiple personality disorder, and I'd made the decision in the back of my mind I would never encounter the phenomenon again for the rest of my career because it was so rare. So I was so fascinated with the original case, and in this second example, I realised also I thought that if someone had a multiple personality, they would show a switch as obvious as Sybil. So I had a Hollywood cartoon-like idea of what a switch would look like or what a shift, a dissociative kind of shift would look like. And so I overlooked that aspect. And then afterwards, then the penny dropped further. I started to think of other people that I'd seen before, including a young fellow who's 15 or 16 years of age. And I took the very rare decision of after using a Rorschach inkblot test with him and other kinds of assessment, I suggested to his psychiatrist... I thought he might be suffering from schizophrenia. Later on, I looked at his original Rorschach and I thought, no, this fits the dissociative disorder pattern. He'd seen lots of, if you like, angry eyes looking at him, but in a very distorted way that suggested psychosis. But then I thought, wait a minute, he might have had the actual experience in terms of childhood trauma of seeing someone with angry eyes looking to him who might have been abusive, he might have had an abuse history, and without going into the details too much, then 
soon enough it emerged that that person did have an abuse history. And I got some information from a family member that was very convincing of that. And I thought, okay, now, if this is dissociation rather than schizophrenia, then if this young fellow's on the ward, I imagine he's probably at times had visual hallucinations, like using hypnosis to help pass the time on the ward or whatever, and he will have had periods of missing time. So I approached him and I asked him if he had periods of missing time and there was an indication of that. And then I asked him about recent events in the hospital and it seemed clear that he'd completely forgotten a period around Christmas that was just two weeks earlier. I thought, clear signs of amnesia. Then I asked him, have you sometimes imagined seeing things that weren't there? And he said, yeah, look, um, why do you ask? But yeah, just a week ago, I saw some cookies on the bed and I reached out to grab one to eat it and there was nothing there. There were no cookies on a plate as I saw them. And then another time my mother was sitting on the end of the bed and I went to hug her, but she wasn't there. Now, you don't tend to get visual hallucinations with psychosis. That tends to be more auditory hallucinations. So I thought that fitted the pattern more of dissociation than schizophrenia. And there are risks in diagnosing schizophrenia early, so I would have very rarely done that with someone of that age. We tend not to do that. But I thought the signs had been so stark of alterations in reality. But the strange part of this story is that when I went back and explained to the psychiatrist that I thought I'd made a mistake, that it was not psychosis but dissociation in this young fellow, the psychiatrist never believed me, never shifted the diagnosis. The diagnosis had become quite controversial in the hospital at the time. And I was actually taken away from his treatment. I was moved by a psychiatrist from the team that I was on, on the ward, to another team. In a sense, I was expelled from a team because I was persisting with saying that I thought someone had a dissociative disorder, which was seen as not acceptable by most psychiatrists at the hospital. And I will just pick up, look, we've, we've made up the name Sally there. <laughs> so yes. it's, uh, yeah, it shouldn't be me, Dad, that has to uh, point this out to you, but uh, we, we definitely haven't uh, given away anyone there. But uh, look, one thing that I wonder about is... Just in the way that you're describing sort of that and particularly that sort of one psychiatrist's reaction to your change of diagnosis, is that something that's quite common in the medical field? Because as you've described there with the clinician potentially needing to go through some sort of paradigm shift within themselves, I could imagine that there's potentially people in quite powerful positions of, of power within a hospital or something that may not have gone through that particular paradigm shift themselves. So I may find it hard to understand where you're coming from with some of this sort of stuff. Yes, and that's what helps you understand how subjective at times our views are around diagnosis and treating people and all the rest of it. Because what happened in our hospital in Geelong is the same as what was happening across North America around the same time, 1990 and the early 90s, that hospital staff were becoming split around the theme of whether dissociation exists or dissociative disorders exist or whether they don't exist. And most people were taking the line that it didn't exist because it did involve such a shift, such a paradigm change in our thinking. It was a really difficult thing to get your head around. And... As one psychiatrist said at one stage, he said, yeah, but look, 
this would involve a whole lot of time to you know, look up different ways of dealing with things. We, we just don't have that time to spend on looking at all this different kind of literature and it, it doesn't sort of fit with our usual ways of looking at things. Now, as a psychologist, you know, we believe in a scientist-practitioner model and we think that if something is different, well, you just need to spend that time or at least read some articles of people who did spend the time And as another example of how the split came up in the hospital is because it was a controversy and I was responsible at the time for the in-service education program. So on the program, some weeks hence, I put on the topic dissociation, that we would discuss that as a staff group. Now what happened just before the meeting, a week before the meeting, is another psychiatrist came up with an article by a Canadian psychiatrist. It was only about four or six pages long. It had no empirical research to it, and it basically said multiple personality did not exist. And then the psychiatrist explained, well, there's the answer. He put the article in every pigeonhole. We won't be having that conversation. We won't be discussing that topic. And I think that this reflected also some of the challenges in psychiatry at the time, which to some extent persist now, some of the problems in treating people or helping people with dissociative disorders in mainstream mental health settings is medication is not an answer. People might benefit from different types of medication, including antidepressants, maybe if they also have depression. So I'm not saying that medication is never indicated. Sometimes it can be quite helpful, but it's not a treatment in itself for dissociation. Many psychiatrists had lesser training in psychotherapy over the last, say, 30 years or so because they were hoping so much that the science of biology and medication could be an answer for all sorts of conditions so people became de-skilled in psychotherapy and I think there was also the problem that the way that particularly some psychiatrists would deal with conflict would be overly autocratic and so for example by decree or directing people not to go down a certain line say look we won't be discussing that in that way I think well certainly for my experience from my experience Looking at dissociation and dissociative disorders was a fascinating way of understanding the politics of psychiatry and the politics of mental health care. The nature of subjective ways of looking at problems, what we would tend to focus on, like the blind man and the elephant, it helped show that even diagnoses could relate to fashion. What was in fashion at the turn of the 20th century and for decades afterwards then became out of fashion from the 1920s onwards... Then some people picked up on it more from the 1970s. It got a little bit more momentum, including from research in the early 90s, but it wasn't in fashion despite the building research then about the incidence of dissociation being and dissociative symptoms being more prevalent, for example, in war veterans. And I think there's been a very slow development since. I think a number of younger psychiatrists in particular are more open to it. I think that dissociation and dissociative symptoms are recognised a little bit more freely. But still, I think there's a lot of ignorance about it because of the overemphasis on medication, underemphasis on psychotherapy. And so I still think it's really under-recognised and I still think that it's even more likely when people have severe dissociative conditions, more likely to be diagnosed with psychosis than dissociative disorders even today. So if we're talking about the fact that dissociative disorders relate to repeated trauma and extended periods of trauma, 
We spoke a little bit last week about your uh, work that you did with war veterans. So were they a cohort of people who, I suppose, presented with potentially larger proportions of dissociative symptoms than the, than the general public? Yes, and I found that fascinating, learning more about dissociative symptoms with war veterans. And um, look, part of the story of me working with war veterans is along with others who'd been very interested in dissociative disorders in the hospital where I worked, most of us left the hospital. It became very difficult to continue working there, partly because of the split that I described and, as I say, being moved from one team to another. It was feeling invalidated and feeling disenfranchised, which interestingly mimicked the phenomenon of dissociation itself. Like The hospital staff became split, reflecting a core aspect of dissociative experience. It involves a kind of splitting or disconnection. But afterwards, I wanted to work with another trauma population because I've become fascinated with dissociative experience. And so I thought that might be another group of people good to work with. So I moved to the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital and after about a year or so became involved with a number of other colleagues in helping setting up a program which we called the PTSD program because we were highlighting that aspect of post-traumatic stress, which even then in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, that was largely unrecognised as well. People commonly, when they were presented at team meetings, it wasn't highlighted their trauma experience, mainly their alcohol use and uh, anger problems and depression and things like that. So even trauma was under-recognised in those days. But one of the things that greatly interested me is I was doing some research for my postgraduate studies when I was at the Repat Hospital and I gave them the dissociative experiences scale as one of the questionnaires I was using And I was struck by their responses. The first time I gave it to them to fill out, they were actually in a group. And I thought that someone must have been answering in a certain kind of way and others must have been copying their answers because it was so unusual. Because how the dissociative experiences scale works is you ask people about different experiences like do you sometimes find that you're looking at the world through a fog or how often do you feel as though your body doesn't belong to you or how frequently do you find yourself in a place with no idea how you got there. And you mark on a line where to the right means it's towards 100% of the time and to the left it's 0% of the time. And I thought they must have been copying each other's answers, answering out to the right willy-nilly, because it was too hard to take what they said at face value. But after a while, it just twigged that half the war veterans had very prominent dissociative symptoms. And actually, these are some of their results that I had here. From 135 war veterans, very representative of the group, is about 90% of those that I'd come across were prepared to fill out the questionnaires, They said that they felt as though their body didn't belong to them about 17.5% of the time. Acting so differently as if they were two different people, 39% of the time. Looking at the world through a fog, 25% of the time. Not recognising themselves in a mirror, 9% of the time. Hearing voices that tell them to do things or comment on what they're doing about 24% of the time and finding themselves in a place with no idea how they got there about 27% of the time. Now, I don't take those responses just at face value. However, I think they were saying that these things happened a lot. And when you think about trauma and complex trauma and repeated trauma and the impact it has on people... Yeah, it's understandable that people would not be wanting to 
feel their distress in their bodies and minds. So having different ways of numbing or detaching themselves from that experience. So it kind of made sense that about half the veterans would have this prominent experience that added up to these averages. But it did really strike me how unusual that seemed compared to what I've been taught. We weren't taught to look for this. And then there was research coming out in the early 90s, including with war veterans, that showed similar results that dissociation was very prevalent with war veterans to the point that some people said that PTSD should be redefined as a dissociative disorder. Now, I think that was going a little too far, but I was doing some research on that at the time on looking at the prominence of dissociation and the frequency of dissociative reactions in war veterans. And there's a whole lot of research that was coming out saying it was quite prominent. So that was kind of teaching us we should look for that in other clients as well or when people have experienced significant past trauma, we should be looking for dissociative symptoms rather than ignoring them. Well, as you were describing that there, it sort of led me to think, I suppose if we look back to what we're almost trying to do on today's podcast in terms of demystifying dissociation and what we can learn about mental health from it. It really, to me, highlights the link between, I suppose, identity and almost loss of identity and trauma. And maybe dissociation and dissociative disorders, maybe that's one extreme or one tangible way that we can think about how trauma and traumatic reactions really do attack our identity. Yes, and I think that what you're saying there, it relates to the idea of Dissociative disorders really show up something on the edge of human experience. Again, as Hollywood is interested in. But as an example of how much it could be on the edge of human experience and impact on someone's identity, one war veteran that I met early on and knew over a period of a couple of years, he had the most striking example of dissociation before he was admitted. What led him to be admitted to hospital is that he had found himself near Adelaide at a cemetery and he was scrabbling at the ground. He was actually starting to dig at his father's grave as though he was digging up his father's grave and he felt like he was eight years old at the time. He suddenly kind of becomes aware of himself or comes to feeling eight years old. He goes back to his car and he could not drive off because he felt like he was eight years old and didn't know how to drive. Now, that just struck me as so remarkable. It relates to something kind of like called translogic. Translogic in hypnosis means you believe something as though it's true, and then it impacts on your functioning in some way. So he felt as though he was eight at the time, so like reliving a past memory, no doubt. And because he felt that he was eight and he was telling himself he was eight, he had amnesia for how to drive, even though that's an implicit memory skill, and people often retain those skills with hypnosis. That shows how remarkable the phenomenon was. But afterwards, he'd actually been admitted to another hospital, and he described that he was paralysed. He could not walk for a period of time, but he explained to me that none of the staff believed that he couldn't walk. They thought he was putting it on. Now, if we go back 100 years to the time of Freud, when Freud talked about hysteria, they talked a lot about conversion disorders, 
Now, conversion disorders mean, for example, a person's blind, but there's nothing physically wrong with their sight, or they can't walk, or they're paralysed, but actually there's nothing in the functioning of their legs or whatever that says they shouldn't be able to walk. And so when they talked about hysteria a lot 100 years ago, that meant either conversion or also somatization, so like pain in different parts of the body, and then dissociation, which is where we get the disconnection of cognitive and emotional functioning in some ways. So again, we go back to these recognised conditions. They recognised conversion disorder a lot 100 years ago, but they just didn't believe that this fellow had this problem, thought he was making it up, so he had to teach himself to walk again. And I think that again... Just there's an issue around dignity and humanity. Like what's happening if we don't believe what a client or a patient in a hospital says? I think we've got to have a really good reason not to believe someone or at least consider what the person's saying to some extent at face value and then try and find some truth behind that because most people aren't going to be in hospital for the fun of it trying to you know, lead the staff up a garden path. And I think that's the other thing that I learnt with dissociation. People would really keep their dissociative experience to themselves. And they would actually freak out if, at first, if they thought that they might be suffering from something like multiple personality. That was part of the problem with the name, actually, because it made people feel even more freakily weird. I think dissociative identity disorder is a better name for it. But people were, were more fearful of having a dissociative condition than they were of being psychotic. And so, yeah, I think this gets at the importance of trying to appreciate people's experience and look at what language they use and what language that we use and realise it's all difficult and it's all complicated, but try and come up with some kind of collaboration where we're working together because this fellow often felt that people were working against him rather than with him. Well, I guess that just leads me to sort of think of, you know, how interesting is the brain in the sense of, the more that we learn about the brain and, and other people's brains, you know, the more fascinating it just seems. And I guess what I really take out of that is that we all have a brain in the sense that the, I suppose, functions that lead someone to be dissociative, we have those within ourselves as well. So, you know, it's not as if people are sort of, you know, dehuman in a way. And, and like, geez, we can learn a lot about looking at the way that they sort of perceive reality and how it's different to us. And, Look, I guess just to almost finish off here, and look, correct me if I'm wrong, but one thing that I really take out of looking at dissociative disorders is that where possible, it is best to process trauma and process events that have happened to us where best possible and not implement these patterns of avoidance and not implement these layers of buffering for ourselves. So what are some of the ways that we can treat dissociation, that we can almost get past... Like I think of someone who may have a, a well-ingrained system of buffering themselves using these hypnotic-like mechanisms. So how do we almost break the cycle of that and actually treat dissociation? Okay. Now, again, a really good and the deepest question, really, because it's about how to look to be helpful in some ways when people are really struggling. Now, one of the things is to identify it and then look to demystify it using psychoeducation. A lot of people greatly benefit from just 
receiving a description of common dissociative experiences and the notion of this is a lot more common than people might recognise. These are some of the reactions that people might have with it, periods of missing time, standing outside their body, looking on as though they're another person. And we can describe these reactions in a way that even though they might be starkly weird in some situations, they relate to something that we can well relate to more normally, like the notion of hypnotic mechanisms or going in a bit of a trance state or switching off to aspects of our experience. So I think people often benefit from then learning that a lot of the dissociative experience overlaps with normal phenomena in hypnosis. So part of the problem with dissociation, it's when these normal hypnotic mechanisms happen unbidden. They happen automatically or spontaneously. So the person, like without intending to, has amnesia or they're feeling as though they have a different kind of experience or nature, as though they're functioning like they're a different person or like this switching that they're experiencing sometimes against their will kind of thing. Now, if we can kind of demystify some of that, that really helps. And then, well, the main prescription, if you like, is something which is not fun, but this is a core thing. It's encouraging people to learn to feel their experience, manage with their experience within their own skin. In other words, it's the opposite of dissociation. It's looking at that integration, integrating our feelings and our experience more by experiencing your feelings within your own skin. And that's like the theme of exposure with trauma. For people to deal with trauma memories, often they need to be able to, in a therapy setting maybe, but go back to a traumatic memory and go through the memory using particular therapy techniques and safeguards and all the rest of it, but to go through the experience so their anxiety will increase, then it will peak, it'll level off and then come down. So that exposure experience is challenging, but with dissociation it's partly just dealing with painful feelings is an exposure in itself. So some awareness of what's happening looking to manage with feelings. So therefore, people need to develop some kind of arousal management. So looking at what strategies people have to reduce anxiety. It can include breathing techniques. It can include distraction techniques, but mindful distraction, if I could call it that way. A number of other kind of strategies for reducing anxiety can help, but also what we call grounding techniques. Because grounding techniques help people be more integrated with their experience. A grounding technique could include... Well, it could even include looking around the room and describing objects that you see in the room, maybe describing their texture and colour because that keeps you oriented in the present to the outside world. Or it could be looking down at your feet against the floor and maybe rubbing your feet against the floor and noticing the feeling that goes with that and looking at your feet on the ground. That can be a grounding technique itself. So different strategies to help people experience themselves in the moment. Then beyond that, and I would say also it's worth taking into account that for severe dissociation, many people it's an extended period of psychotherapy. Many people would be working on therapy over a period of a couple of years. It's not that everybody would have to do that. You can get a lot of benefit from 10 sessions of psychoeducation and anxiety management, for example. But if people can persist over a period of time to look to improve not only their emotional functioning but personality functioning, we look at things like boundaries. 
How do people manage boundaries, including in their relationships? Often because people were abused and when they're in a position where they kind of had to put up with that, sometimes people find it harder to keep themselves safe. So it can be learning further ways of keeping oneself safe, asserting oneself with other people. So part of it's around managing with conflict in a certain way, being discerning about relationships, looking at who you might trust and who you might not trust, but allowing your boundaries to be a bit permeable, not keeping everybody out of your life, so to speak, or being too cautious that way, but being able to, in a discerning way, let some people in gradually learn to trust some people, hopefully by picking a trustworthy person in the first place, then, look, it's partly being patient over time with these things. If over a period of time people are managing their painful experience more and more within their own skin, they're learning more about when they're dissociating and recognising the temptation to go in that direction but looking to keep oneself present in different ways, using different strategies for managing anxiety and distress, again, managing boundaries, and then lots of self-compassion, treating oneself well and looking at like healthy and positive social supports. Those kind of things make a real difference. And then I would say maybe this is where the character strengths come in, recognising one's positive identity, recognising the good things about your personality and taking them on board and integrating those. Like at times people can be a bit self-invalidating because many people with dissociative experience have experienced trauma or overwhelming distress and an invalidating environment. So that's partly learning that way of being discerning, having trusted others that you can rely on to a degree, but also recognising the good in one's personality and hopefully having that reflected back from other people. Because the opposite of dissociation is integration, So to the extent that we own and integrate the positive aspects of our personality, that's a wonderful thing to do. And one of the best ways of doing that is to look at our character strengths, following through the questionnaire that we have on this podcast website, uh, looking at your character strengths in an objective way, maybe even filling them out at two or three different times, maybe even a year apart or whatever, and looking at those things that are consistent are more integrated in our personality and taking that on board. And so with positive relationships with other people, with more of that positive self-acceptance and looking at drawing on our social supports but looking at ways of managing our feelings and getting through painful experience, then there's less a need. There's less a need to draw on dissociation. It happens less and less and less. People feel a little bit more integrated, a little bit more consistent in their functioning. And then I'd say one's roles in life, family roles, work roles, those broad roles in life, very helpful for all of us for our development and growth as people. And I'll say as a final thing, many people with dissociative experience do this. If they've come from a family environment which has been traumatic or abusive or quite negative in some ways, many people are motivated to turn things around in a generation. And you see this, that like the way that people live on themselves and in their friendships, and or if they have children and families of their own, many people are geared toward providing a safer, more protective environment for their own children. And that's something to celebrate, turning things around in a generation. So celebrating also your family experience and celebrating the health in your children. That's a wonderful healing thing in itself.
Well, thanks for having a chat with me today, Dad, about all this sort of stuff. It is absolutely fascinating just to really, I suppose, pick into some of the nitty gritty in terms of the different ways that the brain works and look at something that I potentially think might come up again in terms of that idea of of maybe looking into what happens on the edge of human experience because, uh, yeah, it's certainly something that I'm fascinated with and, and I think that you're the same. Absolutely, Rowan. Well, for those of you who haven't already... Give us a subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, Dad, next week I think we're going to have a bit of a chat about avoidance. So look, it's something that we've spoken about a little bit before, but it is relevant to so many psychological conditions, I think, and quite relevant to that layering aspect that we've been talking about with trauma too. So Dad, I'll see you next week. Look forward to it, Rowan.